Welcome back to Second and Short. It is Wednesday, September 6th, 2023. And before we even talk about this weekend or what is happening going forward, um, if you're listening on YouTube, you're watching me as well. This is our first episode with any kind of video. Um, we'll be officially starting the uh, two-person video episodes on Wednesday of next week. Um, my background is a little weird. Uh, threw this together pretty quickly to record this one, but you know, still in the process of getting that all done. Um, but if you're listening on any of the other platforms, you probably also noticed that there's no co-host today. And um, if you'd have asked me about three and a half, almost four hours ago, where's your co-host? I'd say, what are you talking about? Me and Colin are recording right now. But um, we recorded the whole episode, and then Colin left his house to go to the Braves game, and I went to go edit and realized that OBS, my settings, had reset for recording output, and it only recorded my audio. So I figured if we're going to put up an episode of just my audio, it might as well be just me on the recording. So uh, yeah, we're just going to run back through it. Um, you know, not everything, of course, had to cut out a couple of things. So next week's episode, you'll be getting our NFL start bench cut. Me and Colin, we did a whole thing. It was super fun. And uh, you guys should look forward to that next week. And then we also, uh, taking out of the prep sheet, we will not do any of the MLB questions from Reddit. And instead, we'll just uh, hit a couple of the ones from this week, next week, and then obviously some new ones as well. But We'll go ahead and start with the NFL um, Thursday Night Football. It, it, this is going to be a huge, huge season opener. Uh, we just learned that Travis Kelsey is hurt. He hyperextended his knee at practice. But I, I just think that if he's not there, if he's not even just not 100%, the Lions should feel that they can win that game. I, I, don't, I don't see where anybody could doubt this Lions team, especially if it's a Chiefs team either without Travis Kelsey or a Travis Kelsey that's not quite ready to perform at that time. Because, look, the Lions significantly improved last year. And, yes, Jameson Williams is suspended, so they do lose a wide receiver, but you still have a Monroe St. Brown, and you have these new running backs in the system. You have this super high-ceiling rookie running back with Jameer Gibbs, and I just, I, I, I see this as a game that could actually be played very close. The spread right now, the Chiefs are favored by six and a half. I think that's just home field advantage in my eyes. I, I really do think that the Lions have a fighting chance in this game. And I, I think a lot of that rides on the back of this good offense with an improving defense. They made improvements in the defense. They made improvements in the secondary with guys like C.J. Gardner-Johnson, but Aiden Hutchinson is growing, and I think that just that bodes so well for the Lions in this matchup. But I think if Kelsey's good, if he's you know there and still getting a bulk of the receptions, then I don't think the Lions face you know stand a chance. Uh, I I think I'm trying to think. I, I feel I feel like with with Kelsey, the Chiefs probably still take it, but it's not by a big margin. Uh, I don't think they cover. I don't think they cover that six and a half. I think they win <clears throat> probably, I'll go 28-24 Chiefs uh, with Kelsey. Without Kelsey, I think the Lions edge them out. The Lions end up winning 
31 to 17. Yeah, 31 17 Lions if Kelsey's out. But look, th- this is just the start of football. And I am so excited for the rest of the NFL season. I'm really excited if you guys are here that start bench cut next week because it was super fun to record. And I am so mad that uh, we don't have Collins' audio for it uh, on that episode because it, it was a, a great episode overall. But, yeah, look, the NFL is certainly heating up. Um, actually, I think nope, we just got an update on Travis Kelsey. So he did hyperextend his knee, but it appears that his uh, his ACL is intact. So it's not looking too bad. It uh, looks like he wasn't even the one in the play that got hurt. It says wide receiver Sky Moore said he was running a route on the play when Kelsey was injured. Uh, Moore said when he was li- he was limping when I saw him like just walking off the field. Huh. So I guess he got up on his own, but very interesting uh, update there on the Kelsey injury. Nonetheless, football has started. This Thursday is the beginning, but Sunday is where it's at. And um, we'll talk plenty about Sunday on Friday's episode with me and Luke. Um but, yeah, I'm looking forward to Thursday Night Football and uh, looking forward to the start of the NFL season. So let's talk MLB. Of course, I have my list of winners and losers, uh, and there's plenty to talk about. But we have a special edition of winners and losers today, uh, and it's not just because I'm alone. It is because we have winners, losers, and to start, scum of the earth. And scum of the earth this week is Dodgers starting pitcher Julio Urias. That guy is a grade A piece of shit. He was arrested and charged with domestic violence charges uh, just the other day. The Dodgers announced that he will not travel with the team at this time, but this is not his first offense. He was arrested on suspicion of domestic battery uh, back in 2019, and though he was eventually not charged, he did serve a 20-game suspension. So for Urias, once again, this just looks so bad. Um, and it is so bad. If any of this happened at all, anything really close to this happened at all, he needs to be reprimanded. And I think the big question here now is, okay, this wasn't a one-time thing, obviously. So where do the Dodgers go from here? This guy is a, a, one of the best pitchers, uh, at least has been one of the better pitchers for this Dodgers team has been you know, pretty good for them in the playoffs, leads to a lot of successful games, but when it comes down to it, you guys set a precedent with Trevor Bauer. And now you face this a, a similar situation with Julio Urias. How are they going to handle this? Right now he's not traveling with the team, but if this is an ongoing investigation into the playoffs, I, I, I feel like he should not be playing. Whether he's... You know, whether he's actually suspended starting in that time, but I don't think a suspension will occur within the next month. I, I think he should be put on the restricted list, and um, that should be kind of all done and dusted, at least while this investigation's going on. Because it's not only is it his second offense, but it's a, a horrible thing, something that we see littered throughout professional sports and just throughout our world in general. So... I don't know how the Dodgers could possibly just not do anything about this or at least let him play. Like, I don't know how they could let him play in the interim while we try and figure out this whole situation. 
Uh, nonetheless, hopefully everything gets figured out properly. You know, whoever's right, wrong, is uh, is dealt with correctly. And uh, hopefully to uh, Julio Urias' partner, I hope everything is all right. But on a lighter note, let's get into the winners and losers. Our first winner, Royce Lewis. He just keeps hitting grand slams. I, I, I don't know what to say. The guy has been white hot. He hit his third grand slam of the year which was also his third in eight games. He becomes the second player to hit at least five home runs and three grand slams over an eight-game span. He joins Lou Gehrig in 1931 in that company. How wild is this? Royce Lewis, a guy that we brought him up the other day because he hit two grand slams in, I believe, the same game or in two games, uh, I'm already I'm already forgetting, but now he adds on a third. I think it's his fourth career Grand Slam in his very young career. But how nice that you know the Twins have this addition of Royce Lewis this season because he has certainly been picking up the slack, especially because there is a lot of low points on that team right now. And though they lead their division. You know, how good are they going to be come the playoffs? You know, they're likely going to have a pretty tough matchup. They're the three seed right now, which means they're probably going to match up with the Rangers. At the moment, as it looks, either the Rangers or Blue Jays, and I just don't see them winning a series against those teams, especially because of my next loser, who is Royce Lewis's teammate, Joey Gallo. Gallo is hitting 172 with an MLB high 43.2% strikeout rate in 109 games for the Twins this year. And that includes batting 147 with just 16 RBIs in his last 75, batting 138 in the 40 games since the All-Star break, and now he is 1-for-25 with 16 strikeouts since his 4-for-4 game on August 12th. This is the kind of stuff that gets you dropped. Like this isn't even like they already took him out of the lineup pretty regularly. At this point, this is the kind of stuff that gets you DFA'd. Like it is insane that he is even on this roster, let alone getting in the game. And yeah, the Twins had a fantastic showing against the Guardians, but that was off of a bad start from Lucas Giolito and obviously the grand slam for Morris Lewis and his six RBIs in total certainly helped him out. I just, I don't understand how Joey Gallo still has a place on this team because he's not the only dead weight. There's plenty of other guys that are far underperforming what they should be with that team. So the the fact that he's even, even touching this lineup it is absurd, especially for a team that's winning their division. But my next winner is <laughs> a fan that committed an interference on a sure catch in foul territory at the Astros-Yankees game on Sunday Night Baseball. And as a result of his you know, fan interference, he got an interview with Buster Olney on Sunday Night Baseball, and he was pretty entertaining. Uh, he, he, you know, was getting asked a bunch of questions and said that this was his first game that he'd been to. Uh, he brought his son with him. They just moved down to Houston, and he just wanted to catch that ball for his son, which is so great, but obviously went about it possibly the worst way possible. And um, 
<laughs> admitted that it looked like the ball was coming right at him, you know, when it was in the air. And I think everybody that's been to a major league game and had a ball hit anywhere near you, you can you, you immediately think like that ball is coming right at me. No matter where it's actually going to end up, it could be like five sections down from you. You're going to think it's coming at you at least for a second. When you got a ball hit right into your section, you all you're automatically going to think that you are the one that's going to have to catch this ball. And he he obviously thought it was, but ends up reaching over the railing, hitting it with his hand, and um, making the Yankees left fielder miss that ball in foul territory. But yeah, what a what a fun guy. But uh, odd that he was wearing a Royals hat. Um, maybe he just moved from Kansas City, but. Maybe uh maybe buy an Astros hat now, now that you're living in Houston. Uh nonetheless, let's move on to our next loser, the Angels. And, and there's not much to say here because you sum it up with one sentence. The Los Angeles Angels were swept by the Oakland Athletics this weekend. You heard me right. The Oakland Athletics, soon to be Las Vegas Athletics, not only swept a team but they swept the Angels. Like, how could the Angels... Like, it seems like they're trying to be bad. It, it makes no sense. You guys remember the trade deadline that happened, you know, two months ago? Well, that doesn't matter anymore because they dropped everybody they traded for except CJ Crone, and it's just... It's so interesting. And now we've got Otani, who's you know, definitely leaving. Mike Trout's having conversations with the front office. I don't know what is happening in Los Angeles, but they need to fix it, and they need to fix it quick, or they need to ship off all of their good players and start the rebuild because it's not happening anytime soon. But my next winner stays in the AL West. He's with a struggling team in the AL West as well, the Rangers, but he is certainly not struggling Mr. Corey Seager, who has now made enough plate appearances this season to be a qualified hitter after missing the opening couple of weeks of the season, I believe. Corey Seager now finds himself as a qualified hitter, and he is now first in the American League in batting average with a 345 batting average, and he's also, that puts him second in the majors, he's also second in the majors in OPS with a 1065. This guy has been killing it. Since he made his return to the lineup, he has been absolutely killing the baseball. And honestly, for Corey Seager to be hitting at these levels, at least, you know, as a contact hitter, is kind of crazy. You know, he's never really been a contact hitter. When you look back at his seasons in the past, you know, his best, like his career batting average is a two ninety three. And this season is really, really helping. 2022, he was an all-star. He batted 245. In prior years, 2021, a little bit of a shortened season with injury, he batted 306. The shortened season, 2020, 307. But in three of his you know, years before that, 2019, 2018, 2017, which 2018 only played 26 games, batted 267. But 2019... Played 134 games, only batted 272. And in 2017, bat, played 145 games and only batted 295. To bat 345 over 
430 plate appearances is phenomenal. And, yeah, the, the fact that he's actually now, yeah, he leads the AL with uh, the batting average. He leads the entire MLB in OPS plus and slugging with that qualified batting average. So he's just absolutely killing it. Uh, there's you know no ifs, ands, or buts about Corey Seager's dominance at the plate this year. But there is certainly an argument about this shortstop's dominance at the plate this year because he has been horrible and um, just just downright bad. It's one Carlos Correa, man who should probably be a, a San Francisco giant <laughs> at this point. He is now set the Twins' all-time record for grounding into double plays with 29 ground outs into double plays this season. I, I just, me and Colin looked at the list when we originally recorded this episode, and the fact that that puts him, I believe, tied for 13th all-time, and he is only four double plays away from tying the all-time record. That is absolutely ridiculous. Like, this is a guy that we were talking about a couple of years ago. It was like, okay, what are his options? Dodgers, Yankees, Met. Like, we were talking about him as if he were the best shortstop in the MLB. And he should be getting paid so much money. Now, the guy is batting what? Like... Probably just over 200. Uh, I'm going to pull it up right now, but the fact that he is just leading, he is leading the Minnesota Twins in batting average, batting 230, an on base percentage of only 309, and a slugging at 400. He literally has an OPS of 409, or sorry, 709. That is so bad. And he's only got 61 RBIs. Somehow he's one of the best hitters on the Twins, but. It's just, there's no way to explain how bad Carlos Correa has been, especially when you look at the money he's being paid. He's got one of the biggest contracts for a shortstop, and he's tried to leave for the last two years. He's tried to make the big move, couldn't pass the medicals, and now he sits in Minnesota having horrible seasons and just continues to rake in this money and when he becomes a free agent next, he'll probably once again be regarded as a hot commodity. It, it really makes zero sense to me that Carlos Correa continues to just be in the mind of MLB GMs. Like, he should not be thought of anymore. There is just way too much talent at the shortstop position for Carlos Correa to still be regarded amongst the best. It, it, it's absurd. But let's talk about a team that is definitely not grounding into double plays, they're hitting the ball real goddamn hard. And it just also happens to be the team that is displayed here on my hat and here on this hat and here on this picture of us winning the World Series. It's the Atlanta Braves who just hit the ball hard and fair because they lead the league in fair balls hit at 110-plus miles per hour this season. And they've done it 182 times. Go, go switch to the YouTube and look at me right now. 182 times. Guess where second place is? 
Second place is a tie between the Yankees and Angels at 88. Think about that. Think about the fact that the Braves would have to stop hitting the ball 110-plus miles per hour in fair play and allow the Yankees or Angels to do it 94 times. Like, how insane is that? It just, it really makes no sense that they're even able to do that. It's downright crazy. But, nonetheless, look, we all know the Braves hit the ball hard. But, they don't even need PEDs, unlike our next loser, which is the D-backs high A pitcher, Jose Cabrera, who is coming off of throwing a no-hitter just a couple of days ago. He was suspended 80 games for PEDs. But you're in high A. Why are you taking PEDs? You, you know, if you thought you'd get away with it, cool. If you need PEDs to get out of high A, I hate to break it to you, dude. You're not making it in the MLB. Like, come on. High A? And you need PEDs? Come on, dude. Just get your velocity up in other ways. There is there is probably a YouTube video that can make you a better pitcher than half the guys in high A. It's just, like, come on, man. Your MLB career is over. If you get dropped while you're in high A baseball because... You got suspended 80 games for PEDs. You better start learning Korean because you are gone, bro. You are done. So, uh, Jose Cabrera, I, I can't wait to can't wait to see you uh, playing it in the KBO at 3 in the morning. But our next winner, the Yankees golden boy, the Martian, Jason Dominguez, who, yeah, he hit a home run and had a, a pretty good debut. But I think he's a winner for this this answer on Sunday Night Baseball. They showed an interview while the game was going on, and he was asked who his favorite players were growing up. And most guys, especially guys from like different countries, will typically just name the guys that came from their country, whatever. American guys typically root for one team. They pick the guys from that team. Jason Dominguez who was on the Yankees, just hesitantly admitted that his favorite players growing up were David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez. Like, he had to have liked somebody else. Like, come on. The Yankees got, like, their PR team has to be like, you can't go around telling people that your favorite players were Big Poppy and Manny Ramirez. It makes the Yankees look so bad. <laughs> like, he could have easily just been like, my favorite player is Alfonso Soriano. Like, you could have done that easily. You could have said it was Derek Jeter. You could have said it was Alex Rodriguez. You could have said it was somebody that doesn't play for a team anywhere near New York. But you decided to pick two players that played for the Red Sox. It, it's crazy. It is absolutely insane to go with those two players as your favorite players growing up when you actively play for the Yankees. But the next loser, the final loser of the day, is one Lucas Giolito because we talked about a game earlier where Royce Lewis 
had a grand slam and six RBIs, and even Joey Gallo got on the board with some RBIs. Well, a lot of that was done off of Lucas Giolito. Uh, he made his debut for the Guardians, and it did not go well. And by did not go well, I mean it was absolutely terrible. Three innings pitched, nine earned runs, seven hits, three homers, three walks, and only three strikeouts. Giolito is now the first pitcher to allow eight-plus runs in a game for three different MLB teams in the same season since Bill McGee did it in 1899. 1899. That is forever ago. Literally 124 years ago, Bill McGee gave up eight-plus runs in a game for the Louisville Colonels, the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Washington Senators all in the same season. And now Lucas Giolito has met him with his Guardians debut this year. And I just I, I, I don't understand what happened with Lucas Giolito. He started off in the MLB as a, a below-average pitcher. Uh, had one very good season, one okay season. He's been relatively average since, and now he has just dropped off the face of the earth. Like, it is ridiculous. He was running, like, full sprint. Then he slowed down a little bit, and then he just, like, tripped over his shoelaces in his career. Like, his career has gone so downhill from the ups that we saw early on, but... Yeah, what a what a horrible performance. And just to to really rub it in, they brought in their catcher to pitch and he pitched 3 innings. It was David Fry. He pitched 3 innings. And he only gave up 5 runs and 2 home runs and only one walk. Lucas Giolito literally pitched worse than a catcher. Like it, it just it doesn't get worse than being showed up by a position player pitching it's it's crazy Luis Gilito you gotta you gotta figure some things out man uh but other things happening around the league outside of the winners and losers um the Braves now have every single member of their starting nine has an OPS plus of 108 or higher uh that 108 I believe is Eddie Rosario who Kind of makes sense. He's had to have quite the turnaround to get to this point. So, um, yeah, shout out the Braves. But also shout out the fans. MLB attendance heading for the biggest increase since 1998's expansion. It's the largest gain uh, for the Phillies this season. They've had the biggest gain to date. They are seeing over 10,000 more attendees at their games than they had at last last season at this same point, which is crazy because they were in a heated wild card race last season at this point in the year and ended up making a run at the World Series. But other teams making big gains this year, the Guardians, the Rangers, the Reds, the Orioles, definitely all make sense. Um, you know, the Guardians probably riding off the hype of last year's playoff performance. Uh, other things, Rocky center fielder Brenton Doyle, he threw a baseball to home plate in the ninth inning of their game the other night, 105.7 miles an hour. Let me say that again. 105, 105.7 miles per, per hour. From center field to home, 
That's the fastest ball thrown by an outfielder that has been tracked by StatCast ever. It has ever been recorded by StatCast. It's just, it's crazy. And speaking of StatCast and these crazy fast-flying balls, Ronald Acuna's 32nd homer of the year and the third of the series versus the Dodgers went 454 feet traveling at a blistering hot 121.2 miles per hour, that being the hardest hit ball of the MLB season this year. It's insane. Like, what are they? What are they doing to these balls? Guys are throwing them super hard. Guys are hitting them super hard. Either everybody is on steroids, or this ball is—I don't know. What are they playing with? Like a, a tennis ball, blitz ball? I, I have no idea. But uh, it's helping me out because the Braves hit the ball hard as shit. But our uh, our final thing we'll talk about here in the MLB is this insane occurrence. Um, Phillies, Padres, Tatis tries to steal third. JT Romuto with his crazy hot arm throws down a third. And it bounces up just in front of Edmundo Sosa's glove, bounces over his glove, and hits the umpire on the chest behind Sosa. Come on, man. Like, get out of the way. He just saved a run for the Phillies by standing there. And he got fucking pelted in the chest. Like, it's kind of insane that he was able to just continue functioning. He should have got knocked on his ass. But he literally, like, gets hit in the chest, and it's just like, damn, that hurt. He just, like, stands there and just looks, and I'm like, come on. And if I'm Tatis, I'm throwing hands. He was going to make it home so easily if that ball missed the umpire. So, uh... I, I hate I hate it. I hate umpires. I hate that they're part of the field of play. Um, I had to hear that one a few times. I also had to tell people that a few times when I umpired. But nonetheless, get the fuck out of the way. Um, also, Julio Rodriguez, first player in MLB history to have 25-plus home runs and 25-plus stolen bases in each of his first two seasons. And one of the discussions me and Colin had, which... We'll probably talk about it again next week. Is can Julio Rodriguez be one of the best players in the league within the next two years? So, you know, it's going to be hard to to lap Shohei, but I think there's a chance that Julio Rodriguez and Ronald Acuna are like they're going to be two that are compared for a long time. I think the Soto comparisons have definitely slowed down. You know, comparing Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto because. They played in the same division. They came up at the same time, and they were fighting for Rookie of the Year, and Acuna won it, but maybe Soto arguably had some better years. That discussion's kind of over. Soto has regressed. I wouldn't say he's regressed. He's definitely gotten better, but he's definitely faded away from the national spotlight, at least, and Acuna is very much in it, you know, being in this NL MVP race, but... I think with with Soto leaving the NL East, it kind of took that one away. But with Acuna and Julio Rodriguez, who just like keep doing the same things, they keep hitting home runs, they keep stealing bases, they keep breaking records, 
these are two guys that I think for a long time coming are going to be compared to each other year in and year out. Who had the better season? Who had the better play in the outfield? Who hit the cooler home run? Who had the better bat flip? Like these two are going to get compared. And and it sucks because they're both two players that I'd enjoy watching, but it, as long as Acuña is a Brave, Julio Rodriguez is getting smashed in the dirt by me. I don't give a shit. If we're comparing the two, it is Acuña 10 times out of 10 for me. I'm I'm sorry Julio. I I have to I have to go that way. But like I said, we're going to skip these MLB questions from Reddit because it's all about Colin's input, really. So um yeah, we'll run some of these back next week. So uh look forward to that as well. But we got to talk college football. What a goddamn weekend we had in college football. Some crazy outcomes, some great first impressions, and some very poor first impressions from some of our top teams. Let's start with number one, UGA, beating UT Martin 48-7. So this seemed like it was a very slow start for Georgia. It was 17-0 at the half. You expect a Georgia team like this, the defending back-to-back national champions to come out and beat the brakes off UT Martin. It probably should have been 48-0 at halftime. And then you remember, oh, they lost their starting quarterback, their starting running back, their offensive coordinator, um, just about all of their wide receivers, and all they really have left year after year is Kendall Milton and Brock Bowers. That's really the only constants in this offense. Just about everything at least endured some type of change year over year. And I think for what it's worth, they played pretty well in that situation. Carson Beck didn't really wow me, but there was certainly a lot of moments where I was like, wow, like that that reminded me of Stetson Bennett. That's the and, and that's a high compliment for a, a quarterback at Georgia. When I saw Carson Beck run that ball in I think it was like a, a four or five yard rushing touchdown. Um, but it literally like I was about to stand up from the couch and be like, way to go, Stetson. And I was like, oh, shit, that's Carson Beck. He just he looked exactly like Stetson Bennett in that moment. It, it was <laughs> it was actually pretty crazy. But overall, like he didn't have a great game. He didn't wow me in the passing game. He didn't wow me in the running game. He was perfectly OK. And I think that's kind of the same sentiment I had for this entire offense against UT Martin is that they were perfectly okay. And if that's what Mike Bobo is going to do all year, that's probably not okay. But if that's how he's going to start, that's fine. But he's got to turn it up. You're following up a guy that has changed the way that offenses function. He is now the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens who have a – just once-in-a-lifetime type quarterback in Lamar Jackson in such a creative offensive style. If you can't come in after that while being a part of that staff, he was the quarterback's coach. If you can't come in and be a part of this this team and carry on that lineage, then you probably need to go. And it sucks because Mike Bobo has been associated with Georgia for a very long time. But if he can't do... Just the slightest bit, like last year's offense or the years prior, there is no reason for him to stay. Because Georgia has the opportunity now to go and get whoever they'd like. 
They can go get whatever offensive coordinator they want from whatever group of five, even some power five schools, and just rip them right out from under somebody and have the next guy. They they have that ability, and Kirby Smart certainly has that ability. Um, otherwise, you know, the defense looked great, but then again, it's UT Martin. So there's not, you know, a great tell, but Malachi Starks had a great game. He's going to be the leader this year. Uh, so that's going to be kind of the big story here is how this defense changes because, you know, obviously the defense has been loaded these last couple of years. Jalen Carter, uh, I'm just going to blank on all their other names. <laughs> Nicobe Dean, Jordan Davis, Keely Ringo, just everybody, Nolan Smith. It, it, literally everybody that has come out of this school in the last two or three years have been so, so good. And if they can just capture half of what they've had these last couple of years with this defense, they'll be fine. They will. Look, if the offense can improve and the defense can just stay strong, this team's going to be 100% fine for all of their games. If they look like this against a real team, sorry, UT Martin, if they look like this against Tennessee if they look like this against Ole Miss, even. When when Ole Miss comes to Athens, if Georgia looks like that, they're probably not going to win. If that offense looks that boring and bland against a Lane Kiffin-led team, they are going to get exposed so quickly. So, look, Georgia, you, you got to make changes. And it I think it starts with Bobo just kind of Evolving this offense, because what we saw week one is that you went pretty standard. Nothing creative, you know, not pulling anything not pulling anything out to really impress anybody, just going out there, winning an easy football game, and going home. So we're going to have to see a week-over-week week improvement. Um, you know, next week, not much harder. Uh, who do they got? They've got, yeah, Ball State next week. Not hard, but... That's just to prepare you for South Carolina in Columbia, or sorry, in Athens, week three. Because, yeah, South Carolina didn't have a great showing, and we'll get to that, but it's still a good team. Shane Beamer is still a good head coach. You can't just underrate that team and just think that, you know, you can just keep working on whatever you'd like. You got to come in prepared for South Carolina. I hate to break it to you, but. You know, Mike Bobo is going to have to do some homework because, yeah, this week was was not enough. But speaking of not enough, Michigan, 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 you were not enough. J.J. McCarthy surprisingly impressed me. Uh, Not too impressed, but the most impressive passing showing I've seen from him in a while. I know last year I was very critical of him because nobody ever made him pass the ball and Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards would just beat the teams themselves. Maybe this year's different. Maybe it's just because Harbaugh wasn't there because he's serving that suspension. But 26 for 30 for McCarthy for 280 yards and three touchdowns is great. I, I You can't really ask for that much more. But I could ask for maybe some more carries for Corum and Edwards together. They combined for 22 and only 110 yards and one touchdown between the two of them. These are two guys that are like, 
top tier. Like these are two guys that could deserve to go first round as running backs in the NFL draft. In this day and age, they could go first round as running backs. How are you not giving them the ball? I, I just I, I can't get it through my head why you would not want to force these guys the ball as much as possible. And, and I get JJ McCarthy did a great job. This offense could have been better. They ran and passed the same amount of times. 31 carries, 31 pass attempts. So what what gives? Why, why, why did you not score more than 30 points on ECU? Let's start there. Why did that not happen? Why didn't you have a single receiver over 78 yards? I, I just, I don't know what I'm missing here with Michigan, but there's still something that's not good about this. Yeah, ECU, probably better than a lot of other teams, you know, week one opponents, better than UT Martin, better than Indiana maybe. Uh, arguable, probably better than Middle Tennessee State, but definitely better than Portland State. And Michigan just didn't show me much. They, they came out really slow, really flat, and the only good part of this, surprisingly, was J.J. McCarthy. Um, obviously, the defense was there. They just they have good defensive players. You know, you can't avoid that with Michigan. They're going to recruit pretty well. There's quite a good crop of defensive players coming out of Michigan, so they got lucky there. But Definitely need to see what this team looks like when Harbaugh returns. Luckily, I think they have next week off, and then it's still a pretty easy road until Harbaugh is back uh, for week four. So maybe they'll figure some things out. Maybe they won't. But in the meantime, Ohio State's got to figure some things out because they looked bad. Kyle McCord certainly did not impress in his you know, actual starter for this team debut. Uh, 20 for 33 for 239, no touchdowns, one interception. Something just didn't seem right with this team. And I don't know if it was Kyle McCord. I don't know if it was the coaching. I, I don't know what it was, but there should never be a time for Ohio State where Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Egbuka have five receptions total and only what, 35? Yeah? Uh, no, 30... I can't do basic addition. 34 receiving yards total. Marvin Harrison had 18 receiving yards on two receptions, and Emeka Egbuka had three receptions on... Er, three receptions for 16 yards. Both of their longest receptions were nine yards this is Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Agbuka, two guys that are surefire first-round wide receiver talent. And you only got them the ball five times, but Cade Stover had five receptions for 98 yards. Julian Fleming had six receptions for 58 yards. I know you didn't have all four of them on the field at the same time. <laughs> and I know for a fact that if they were double-teaming Harrison or Agbuka, the other one's probably open. They're that good at creating space. How did the ball not get to them? That's where Kyle McCord comes into the question. Okay, you threw the ball 33 times. How many times did you miss your target? Uh, you know, I can't see that right now, and I didn't watch much of this game because it sucked. I tried to watch some of this game. Kyle McCord was unbearable to watch. He doesn't throw the ball downfield. He doesn't do anything crazy. He can't really run the ball either. He had two carries, eight yards. His longest rush, eight yards. Like, I just, 
I, I don't see it with this team this year, and I'm surprised. I had them as a team that would make the college football playoff. I thought they'd end the streak of Michigan winning the, this matchup, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to change. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why it's happening. The only thing I know is that this defense is still very good. Steel Chambers, fantastic game. Tommy Eichenberg, great game. Uh, JT Tuomaloa, great game. Sonny Styles, one and a half sacks. What a good game for him. Josh Proctor, Caden Curry. So many guys on this defense are so good. And that's one thing that I definitely got right in our Big Ten preview was that Ohio State's defense is going to be good. But Kyle McCord needs to figure some things out because the way that this offense ran, it's not going to beat Notre Dame week four. It's definitely not going to beat Penn State, and it's certainly going to get shit stomped by the Michigan Wolverines. They've got to figure something out, whether it's a change at quarterback or whether they just need to work on Kyle McCord and he's just a project this year because I'm starting to think they aren't making the college football playoff. I'm honestly starting to think that they're probably going to lose two or three games this year. I, I really do think it because Notre Dame has looked very good in their two matches. Uh, they beat Navy 42-3 back in week zero, and then – they back it up again with a 56-3 to victory over Tennessee State. And all of a sudden, Sam Hartman and, um, uh, sorry, their running back, Audrey Esteem, look so good. They look undeniably good. And they're going to roll into, what, they're, they're going to Columbus. No? No. It's in South Bend. Dude, that's the, the easiest decision I've ever made. Notre Dame is winning that football game in South Bend. If Ohio State doesn't look any better against Youngstown State next week, Notre Dame is winning that game. It might be close. Sam Hartman will take over. Audrick Esteem will have a fantastic game. And Ryan Day will be riding back to Columbus crying his ass off. But we end out the top four with one Alabama. Collins' beloved Crimson Tide. And... (laughs) The man that, I'll give him credit for this. When we recorded this the first time, he said that he apologizes to Jalen Milrow for not believing in him. Milrow came out there and put on a show. On, you know, in the air, nothing crazy. 13 completions on 18 attempts, 194 yards, three touchdowns. A a very good day at work. But it was on the ground where he really made the difference. He only had seven carries put up 48 yards, and had two rushing touchdowns. I think he became the first quarterback in Alabama history to have three-plus passing touchdowns and two-plus rushing touchdowns in a single game. How insane is that? The guys that have come through this school, to none of them who have done that is crazy. But my big thing here is, how Tommy Reese has changed this offense. Because, you know, the last couple of years, really for a majority of Alabama's existence, they've had quarterbacks that want to throw the ball. And Tommy Reese, as well, with his job at Notre Dame, has had quarterbacks that want to throw the ball. He's also had running backs that want to run, and and he definitely has incorporated that into this. I'm so surprised to only see 24 passing attempts for an Alabama offense. Yes, they have had some legendary running backs in recent history. But they don't have a a, a standout running back. Jace McClellan's great. 
I think you can utilize him much better. You know, use him a little bit in the passing game, but 10 rushes, 39 yards, one touchdown, just doesn't seem like the kind of game I expect in week one against Middle Tennessee for an Alabama running back. That just doesn't seem right to me. And I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm questioning this run game. I, I feel like with Jameer Gibbs leaving, there's not much left in this backfield. And I think Jalen Milrow definitely helps them out with the rushing, but they are oddly enough missing that kind of running back. And for some reason, running back has just been a weird position in, in professional and college football. The teams that traditionally have great running backs like Georgia, I didn't even really mention that a lot of those guys have left. You know, they went from like the Sean Marino to like Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, you know, everybody that keeps coming after him, Zamir White, all these guys have come through. And now it's like, who's the number one running back? Kendall Milton? Nah. Like, I don't know. It's so weird. And to see it at both Alabama and Georgia, two teams that do a pretty good job of refilling their positions, when a guy goes to the draft or whatever, transfers out, they, they're pretty good at transferring back in another good guy. Like Alabama did a great job bringing Jermaine Burton two years ago. But it just seems like there's something missing here. And the offense was fine. Jalen Milrow was exciting to watch. He was extending a lot of plays that probably wouldn't have been extended by your average quarterback. Jalen Milrow did a great job. This defense was fantastic for Alabama, though. Dallas Turner didn't really have to do much, but he was doing a great job. Terrion Arnold was all over the field. He had a pass deflection in this game, as well as a half a tackle for loss, five total tackles. Deontay Lawson doing a great job. One sack, two tackles for loss, seven total tackles. Caleb Downs was all over the place. Eight tackles, six solo, one tackle for loss. This Alabama defense, it looks unstoppable, just like Ohio State's did. But Alabama had the offense to back it up. Yeah, 14 in each quarter. It seems like Nick Saban was just limiting them. He was like, you know what? We'll, we'll let these guys, you know, get their money. You know, we don't need all this. And uh, just put them to work. But overall, I'm super happy with how Alabama looked. They 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 start off the season just like how they normally would. But uh, – We'll see how it goes from there. Let's talk about the best games of the weekend. We start with Thursday's game, Florida-Utah. Utah put the beats on Florida, 24-11. Let's be honest, this game was won by the crowd. The crowd was so, so strong in Utah. Florida just could not keep up. Graham Mertz looked lost out there. Goodness. Like, yeah, he threw for 333 yards, and he looked like the worst quarterback this weekend. I don't know what it was about that atmosphere, but Graham Mertz was folding. And it just, it makes no sense. And, and like, the fact that Utah, very early in the game, shut down Florida from running the ball totally changed this game. I think a big part of that was that, yes, the defensive line was doing great. I think Florida was afraid of getting more false start calls because when you're running the ball, the offensive line is super important, and and for them to know exactly what they need to do, they need to hear it. 
And if you can't hear those audibles, you can't hear those calls, snap count, whatever, you're fucked with running. Because all these guys have an assignment. They have to do something. And they need the first jump so that they can start opening up those holes for the running game. And they just couldn't do it. Trevor Etienne is a great running back. He had seven carries for 25 yards. Graham Mertz got sacked for 29 yards. Negative 29 yards. He was sacked, I believe, seven times in this game. Or no, five times he was sacked. They had seven tackles for loss. Graham Mertz was horrible. Horrible in this game. And like I said, he had a ton of passing yards. That doesn't mean he had a good game. His QBR was 30. 30 QBR. But for Utah, I didn't even mention, they were missing Cam Rising. Uh, uh, probably an arguably top 10 quarterback in college football. They did not have on the field. Instead, Bryson Barnes and Nate Johnson did a fantastic job of filling in. Bryson Barnes, mainly in the air, killed it. 12 for 18, 159, one touchdown. Didn't really need him much. Nate Johnson, on the other hand, didn't really have to throw the ball much. Three for four, six yards. Standard day. But on the ground, Nate Johnson was a dog. Six carries, 45 yards, one touchdown with a long of 27. And he was running like a running back, let me tell you. He looked so, so good at running. And it was the game changer for Utah. Obviously, their defense was awesome in this game. I, I can't take that away from them. Because Cole Bishop was all over the place. 11 total tackles. One sack. One tackle for loss. Uh, Travis Broughton. Eight total tackles. Seven solo. One tackle for loss. Jonah Ellis had a fantastic game. Four total tackles. Two sacks. Two tackles for loss. One pass defended. He had a pass defended in two sacks. That is just... That's not your regular day at the office. I'll tell you that. But overall, this defense looked amazing. And for Florida, their defense just didn't look like they knew how to defend the run. And they really didn't know how to defend a dual-threat quarterback. That's concerning. Think about the the guys that Florida's going to have to face this season at quarterback. When you're looking at it, it's like, okay, they're going to face Joe Milton at Tennessee. We saw him stiff-arm a Virginia player into hell. He literally sent that man through the football field. And then, yeah, Kentucky, Vandy, they don't really have versatile, you know, running, neither does South Carolina. But Carson Beck, he can move his legs a little bit. When they play Georgia, they might be in a world of hurt if they can't defend a running quarterback. Jalen Daniels will definitely run on you from LSU. And uh, Jordan Travis on Rivalry Week will absolutely expose you if you can't figure these things out for that run defense. So, look, Florida, you got to figure it out. Utah, in the meantime, Keep holding on while Cam Rising's out because uh, it looks pretty good at the moment. Let's just talk about a beatdown now. No fun in these close games. Why wouldn't you want to watch 81 points? 81 points out of the Oregon Ducks against Portland State Vikings, putting up seven. Uh, it's it's honestly just sad. to. Even, we're not even going to talk about Portland State's side. We're going to talk about Oregon. Oregon was absolutely amazing. And yes, it's Portland State. I, I get it. What, 100%? I get it. But Bo Nix, 23 for 27, 287 in the air, three touchdowns. Bro, he didn't even have to run the ball. This is a guy that loves to run the ball. He loves to extend plays that he probably shouldn't. And he didn't run the ball once. 
I'm back on. I'm, I'm back on the. I'm back on the Bonex Heisman train. I'm sorry. I do it every year. He's he's back. Bonex is back. It, like I can't even say it seriously because I. But I do believe it. <laughs> I'm gonna falsely believe this. This is the. This is the year of false confidence for me in college football. Florida State's off to a flying start. Everything is just gonna go my way early, and it is just gonna collapse. It is going to hurt to watch the rest of this season for me. But hopefully, hopefully it all sticks together. But for now, Bo Nix, you're in the Heisman watch. Bucky Irving, uh, what the fuck? How? I, that's all I have. Four carries, 119 yards, two touchdowns, and a long of 56. That's not even like including like some 80-yard rush that he broke off. 56-yarder? Well, four carries? Absolutely ridiculous. And Jordan James, 10 carries, 86 yards, three touchdowns. It just, it makes zero sense. It, it is absolutely insane. And then in the receiving side, Troy Franklin and Gary Bryant Jr. both had over 100 receiving yards on seven receptions, and each of them also picking up two touchdowns. This Oregon team, at least on the offense, is very, 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 very good. Uh, like, it's hard to explain how good this Oregon team is on the offensive side. But let's move to the next one. Good old Coach Prime out there in Boulder. Taking the boys down to Texas and whooping some horned frog ass. They didn't really whoop ass, but they did get the win. Unranked Colorado defeats number 17 TCU 45-42. And the big story here is one Shador Sanders. From HBCU? Yeah, from HBCU, Mr. Shador Sanders. 48, sorry, 38 for 47, 510 yards and four touchdowns. Not a single interception to his name. Shador Sanders, stand up, man. It's crazy. It is genuinely insane that the son of Deion Sanders, who really wasn't like some highly touted prospect coming into college. Ends up following his dad to go go play at Jackson State. Rewrites the script on, you know, what the transfer portal could be by going to Colorado, bringing all of the good players, and then also going to every other school and bringing in their good players. And now they start the season unranked, and they beat number 17. They jump themselves into the top 25, and all of a sudden, Colorado's just a contender in everybody's eyes. I think that's a little early, but who am I to say? I don't vote. I'm not in the AP poll. So I, I can't move on without talking about the receiving game because, you know, Shador had to throw it to somebody to put up 510 yards, and um, there was four somebodies that he threw to, and they all had 117 117- receiving yards or more, which it's like, it's crazy to even look at. Like looking at this box score is ridiculous. Um, Jimmy Horn Jr., 11 receptions, 117 yards, one tutty. Xavier Weaver, six receptions, 118 yards. And then Travis Hunter, who played 120-something snaps in this game, 11 receptions, 119 yards, and he got a pick on defense. Like, it, it doesn't get better than that. 
And I don't think that's sustainable, but we'll talk about that after we talk about Dylan Edwards, who absolutely showed out. The freshman wide receiver gets five receptions for 135 yards and three touchdowns. How? How does a human being do this in just in general? How does this even happen? I can't explain it. You can't explain it. Prime probably can't even explain it. But Dylan Edwards has now burst onto the scene and looks like a for real, for real player. Though he did lose a fumble. I'll, I got to point that out. The man is human. He, he lost a fumble, but still, five receptions, 135 yards. That is unprecedented. Uh, the defensive side, though, like I said, Travis Hunter got the interception. Crazy interception. It was a straight-up wide receiver catch for him. But Shiloh Sanders and Marvin Ham picking up a ton of tackles. Same for Trevor Woods. Um, not really getting to the quarterback. Zero sacks in this game, which... I think is just up to their front seven. The front seven for Colorado isn't great. The secondary is good. Travis Hunter keeps it on locks. Front seven, not too good. They don't rush the quarterback too well, and I think that's why TCU, you know, Chandler Morris had an okay game. Definitely not great, but also because he's throwing at their secondary. But they rushed him pretty pretty well. The run defense, though, was so bad, and I think that also attributes to this defensive line. Monty Bailey had 14 carries for 164 yards. Trey Sanders had 15 carries for 46 yards, but he had three touchdowns. I just, I don't know what it is about TCU. Obviously, so much changed. They lost so many players to the draft. And Colorado, of course, made a ton of additions. They, they were, they won this many games last year. They won one game last year, and they're already tied with that. And uh, next week, they go to Nebraska. That one's going to be interesting. But nonetheless, let's move on uh, quickly. Oklahoma, number 20, they beat Butch Jones as Arkansas State 73-0, and they had Butch Jones crying like a baby. So uh, all right, maybe you should have coached better at Tennessee, and you wouldn't be getting your shit beat in by Oklahoma. Uh, but a fantastic game here Saturday night, UNC, South Carolina. Woo! Heater. 31-17 goes to 21 North Carolina. And Drake May. Drake May looked good. Two interceptions, not great, but did a pretty good job. Four carries, 25 yards. British Brooks, though, on the ground. 15 carries, 103. He had a great game. But the problem I have with this game and, and just kind of watching this game in general was that why are people putting Drake May and Spencer Rattler on the same level? I just, I genuinely don't get it because Spencer Rattler couldn't run from, I don't know, run from a rock. Like a rock would probably beat Spencer Rattler in a race, and it'd probably sack him too. Uh, he got sacked. Let's see. He got sacked nine times in this game. Yeah, nine, nine times. It's just, I don't know what it is about Spencer Rattler that makes people want to like him, but he just throws the ball a lot. I think it's just the numbers. You see the completions, you see the 30 for 39 with 353 yards, and you're like, he must be good. And then you see the QBR of 44, and then you're like, oh, well, maybe those stats are lying to me. And they are. They Those stats are lying to you about Spencer Rattler. He just throws the ball so much that he just... Thinks to have, he's got it figured out. 
he does not have it figured out. I hate to break it to you. He doesn't have it figured out. And neither does Shane Beamer. Shane Beamer's a great coach. If you lose to North Carolina in this fashion, you look pretty bad. You you really do look bad. And they did. They, they could not establish a running game at all. They had 31 carries for a resounding negative two rushing yards. Like, how does that even happen? 31 carries? Spencer Rattler, yeah, a lot of his was getting sacked. But Dakarian Joyner had 12 carries for 23 yards, and Spencer Rattler's sacks made up for that. Like, that is insane. It is genuinely crazy. But shout-out to Xavier Leggett, nine receptions, 178 yards. You know, Spencer had to throw half of those yards to somebody. Happened to be Xavier. Um, But looking forward, you know, I think North Carolina could be a fun team to watch out for. And South Carolina could surprise some people. Who knows? But none of these games that we've talked about, maybe maybe TCU, Colorado, have been better than number five LSU versus number eight Florida State in the Camping World kickoff game at Camping World Stadium in Orlando where we saw the number eight Florida State Seminoles absolutely beat the living shit out of Brian Kelly and those Tigers. It was domination at its finest. Jaden Daniels had a stinker. He looked so inconsistent. On the other side, Jordan Travis started up the Heisman campaign again. 23 for 31, 342, four touchdowns, and an interception that he probably just shouldn't have thrown the ball at all, tried to make something out of nothing, which he did a great job otherwise of. He also had seven on the, seven carries, 38 on the ground, one touchdown. The guy looked undeniably good and undeniably like a Heisman candidate. This guy carries himself so well. He He's a Heisman not only on the field, but in the interviews. This guy talking about how grateful he is for the team that he's been surrounded with and the coaches he has and the players he plays with. It just seems like the guy is so selfless, and that's how he plays the game. He doesn't keep it unless he needs to. He turns these plays out of, out of nothing. Like, it just seems like they can just he just grabs opportunity out of thin air and just runs with it man it is it is amazing to watch i'm so glad that i am you know privileged enough to get to watch jordan travis and for him to be my quarterback but speaking of just so lucky to see i'm so lucky to have keon coleman thank you michigan state for giving me keon coleman he is amazing nine receptions 122 yards three touchdowns and he was bodying people, putting corners in body bags, left, right, and center. Absolutely crazy. And Johnny Wilson, of course, doing his thing, um, catching seven balls for 104, no touchdowns in this one, but dropping just about every ball that's thrown at hip level because this athletic, physical freak has the longest arms in the world and just cannot catch a ball at his hips because his arms are too long for it. He can catch a high ball, he can catch one at the chest, he can catch one all the way down on the ground, but he cannot catch a ball at his hips. I don't know what it is, he just can't. But nonetheless, no more making fun of him because Jaheim Bell had a great debut. He had one reception right at the beginning of the game to get us some positive yardage. I think he pushed us for the first down, can't quite remember, but two receptions, 49 yards, one touchdown. So he had one reception then, and then he comes back and has a touchdown reception in like the fourth quarter and he also ran in a touchdown 
in the fourth quarter. One carry for four yards, one rushing touchdown. Shout out Jaheim Bell. But if you haven't noticed this trend, every single guy that I've named for Florida State transferred there. And this just goes to prove how well Mike Norvell has worked the transfer portal. I think, in in my biased Florida State fan opinion, he has done the best job with the transfer portal out of any coach in college football. Jordan Travis, transferred from Louisville, won the starting job last year and hasn't looked back since. Trey Benson, transferred from Oregon, won that starting job last year. Jaheim Bell, transferred from South Carolina, easily the starting tight end on this team. Keon Coleman, transferred from Michigan State. Johnny Wilson, transferred from Arizona State. And numerous, numerous other people on this team transfer in and just continue to dominate. In prior years, we've had guys that transferred here and did great, and they're now in the league. Jared Verse is still on this team. He transferred from a small school in in New York. I, I can't even remember what team it was, but they saw him on film scouting for Syracuse. And they just happened to see this guy just absolutely expose them. And they were like, who is this kid? Oh, this is Jared Verse. He played for Albany for one year. We should pick him up. Now he's going to be a first-round pick in the NFL draft. And it would have been last year, but he wanted to stay. It's crazy shit what we've got going on down here in Tally. And let me tell you, what they've got going on in Baton Rouge needs some work. It is brutal. The, the offense looked boring. Like Jaden Daniels genuinely doesn't know what he wants to do. It's like they have a predetermined plan, the ball's in his hands, and he's like, shit, what do I do with this football? And half the time he's running it. <laughs> but 22 for 37 looks pretty good. The, the 347, I think, is trying to fool you. Kind of like what I talked about with Spencer Rattler. That number fools you because he had the one touchdown that was a lucky touchdown right at the end of the game. We put in the third stringers. He threw one interception, really bad miscue. Probably should have thrown a couple more as well. 57.6 QBR. That's the telling part. That's how you know when the yards are a lie. Look over to the right. Look at that QBR. That's going to tell you what those yards really mean. He also led that team in rushing. Outside of Jaden Daniels, there was 12 carries. Josh Williams, Noah Kane, Trey Bradford all had a combined 12 carries for a combined 49 rushing yards of their 113. There is nothing here with this offense. <coughs> Brian Thompson Jr. looked great. I'll uh, give, give him all of his praise. Seven receptions, 142 yards, and a touchdown. Malik Neighbors looked like a complete non-factor in this game. I don't know... How? I really can't explain why. Because me and Colin were both super high on Malik Neighbors coming into this season. I just, I can't explain it. He he did a very similar thing to what Kayshawn Boutte did last year against Florida State in the starting, you know, in the first game of the season. It's just, it's crazy how bad he was. You know, yeah, six receptions, 67 yards. It's really not that bad. But when you expect him to be like a Bolitnikoff contending wide receiver, and you see a performance like this to start the season, yeah, it was a good team they're facing, but good players play well against good teams. That, that's kind of the big the big difference there. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see how that, you know, the rest of the season sorts out for Malik Neighbors. But overall, so excited with, you know, so happy with how well the running game came out in the second half. The way that we made adjustments at the half really changed some things up, and, and Norvell really led these guys. So, 
super excited looking forward to uh, to the rest of the season for Florida State because I, I think we've put ourselves into a college football playoff contention with that win. But one more game from this past weekend. Duke upsets number nine Clemson 28-7. to And Cade Klubnick had a stinker. Probably one of the worst quarterback performances from a top 10 team this season. Probably one of the worst quarterback performances from a ranked team this te- this season. Cade Klubnick goes 27 for 43 for only 209 yards, one touchdown, one interception. And like I said, that big number there on the end, that 27.9 QBR that he put up, that one tells the story for Cade Klubnick. It was shit. Will Shipley? Great game because they just force you the ball all the time. 17 carries, 114. Great job. Phil Maffa also had a good game on the ground. 11 yard, er, eleven carries, 65 yards. There is so many guys on this team that can play well. The problem is Cade Klubnick can't. He genuinely is not a good quarterback. This Duke defense is not good. They are not good. Riley Leonard had a horrible game passing. 17 for 33, 175. No touchdowns. He should not have had that. <laughs> like, Duke shouldn't have played this well. Riley Leonard, of course, leading on the ground, though. Nine carries, 98 yards, and that beautiful touchdown run. That was the game changer. But Riley Leonard didn't have, like, a wow-me game in the air, at least. On the ground, certainly wowed me. But, you know, you would have thought in a game like this, 28-7, you would have had some crazy offensive performance and you really didn't. Riley Leonard, yes, a good game for a quarterback to rush 98 yards, but they really should have been better. And Clemson just has fallen off of a cliff. I don't know where it came from, how it came here, but I think all lines point back to Dabo Sweeney. That fucking goober, Dabo Sweeney. I hate that man with just about every fiber in my being, and the rest of them go to Jimbo Fisher. But, yeah, I just... I don't know. I can't explain this win. There's nothing, nothing to explain it because Dabo said it in his interview. In the time that he's coached at Clemson, they're like 58-0 in games where they put up over 200 passing yards and 200 rushing yards. This is their first time losing it. I think he said in the history of the school, they're 108 in that circumstance. Something, something close to that. How crazy is it that he is the guy that ruins it? Um... But yeah, overall, just just shout out, shout out to uh, shout out to Duke. They they did it. They just helped me indirectly as a as a uh, Florida State fan because Clemson's getting fucked. When we play Clemson, I think it's Week Four. Um, yeah, they're gonna get shit on, undoubtedly. Yeah, uh, honestly, they're probably gonna get shit on next week at Charleston Southern. But nonetheless, let's look at this week's new AP poll. I got to pull it back up because I accidentally closed my tab. But the new AP top 25 football poll. Your top two stay the same. Georgia and Michigan, one and two. But Ohio State drops out and in comes Alabama to three and one Florida State Seminoles coming up to four. Moving up four spots after that big win over LSU. Ohio State drops two spots down to five. USC and Penn State sit at six and seven. Washington moves up to eight moves up two spots. Tennessee moves up three spots to nine after their great showing against Virginia. Notre Dame moves up three spots after these two big wins. 
Um, they move up to 10. Texas sits still at 11, while Utah and Oregon both move up two spots, 12 and 13 respectively. LSU drops nine spots after their loss to Florida State, now all the way down to 14. And then Kansas State moves up one to 15. Oregon State, after a great showing from DJ Uangalale, move up to 16. They move up two spots. North Carolina moves up four spots to 17 after their big win over South Carolina. Oklahoma, after making Butch Jones cry, they move up to 18, moving up two spots. Wisconsin sits still at 19 after a a pretty good win over Buffalo, but not great. Ole Miss, a big win over Mercer down down in Oxford. They move up two spots. Shout out Brock. Shout out uh shout out Bacon, Georgia. <laughs> uh Duke sits still at twenty one, which is absurd, honestly. They you just beat Clemson. Twenty eight to seven. And, and they, they sit at twenty one. Like, yeah, now they're ranked. They weren't, but still. In, in Colorado probably should be higher than twenty two. I hate to say it. They probably should. Nonetheless, Colorado at twenty two, not that mad. Um, but obviously huge win over TCU. Texas A&M, number 23. They beat New Mexico State handedly. So they sit there at 23. Tulane sits at 24 uh, after their win over South Alabama. And Clemson drops 16 spots down to 25 after that loss to Duke. Not all that surprised by a lot of these moves, honestly. But let's look ahead to next week's matchups because week two is a little bit weaker, but it's all headlined by a run back. The home and home heads to Tuscaloosa. Texas versus Alabama. If it will show up on my screen. There we go. Texas versus Alabama. Alabama, seven-point favorites? We'll see. This one's going to be good. Xavier Worthy, Quinn Ewers, all of this talent from Texas heading into Tuscaloosa to try and contend with the big dogs. And a a team that seems a little off from prior years. No more Bryce Young. No more crazy good first-round pick wide receivers and running backs. This one's going to be telling of Tommy Reese as offensive coordinator just as much as it is going to be for Jalen Milrow and Jace McClellan in their offensive strategy. This game is the Tommy Reese game. If Tommy Reese does good, Alabama's good. If Tommy Reese doesn't, Texas might win. We might see Quinn Ewers celebrating over Alabama. That is a world that I do not want to live in, personally, as a Texas hater. But as the guy who said that Texas is going to be really good this year, I would kind of like to see it. I hate to say it. I would love to see that. But I'd also just love to make fun of Colin on the podcast next week if if Alabama loses. It's going to be hell for him. I will make that a certainty. If, if, If Texas wins versus Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Colin might never hear the end of it. It won't matter. It will be 60 years old. And I'll be like, you remember that time 40 years ago? When when Alabama lost to Texas with Quinn Ewers at quarterback, he's gonna be like, "Shut the fuck up." But nonetheless, that's probably the best matchup. I also really like Ole Miss versus Tulane this week. Twenty versus twenty-four. You get to see Jackson Dart and Quinshawn Judkins, and you get to see this great Tulane Green Tide just doing some work, man. That's what Tulane does. They come in, they do work, and I love watching them play football. I loved watching them last year. And I'm going to watch them this weekend. 
Um, and then, the, yeah, Ole Miss. How 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 much fun could you possibly have um, watching Quinjon Judkins? Because I think the answer is it's unimaginable. You don't know how much fun you could have watching Ole Miss until you watch it, and you watch Quinjon Judkins just get fed the ball and turn rushes out of nothing into something. Fantastic. Also, Texas A&M, Miami, uh, rematch from last year. This one was a pretty good game last year. Probably could have been better, but still some good players on each team um, that could show out. You also have App State, North Carolina. This was a great one last year as well. It was like they all they were scoring in the 70s. It only took four quarters. If we see anything close to that this year, uh, I'd be super, super happy. <coughs> Otherwise, um, not a lot of other great games. Uh, Baylor looking to bounce back after they got upset. They played number 12, Utah. Uh, Nebraska faces newly ranked 22, Colorado. That one's going to be good. Colorado only favored by three. Actually, since me and Colin recorded the episode, the line has shifted. It started at Colorado by three and a half. Now it's Colorado by three. So, interesting. But, nonetheless, I, I kind of think Colorado's better than Nebraska. Uh, but, Notre Dame, NC State, that one's a good one as well. Um and, yeah, that's really about it. Everybody else kind of got a stinker. Ball State, Georgia, Southern Miss, Florida State, Youngstown State versus Ohio State. Yeah, kind of kind of some boring matchups there. But, um, yeah, I think that does it there. Stake your claim. Ah, fuck it. Florida State's going to cruise to a nice little undefeated schedule through the conference championship game. We're going to beat UNC in that conference championship game. No more divisions. We don't have to get put behind Clemson, but Clemson is going to get put down by everybody they play this year. So they're pretty fucked there. So, yeah, Florida State makes the conference championship. They win it. They stay undefeated going into the college football playoff, and they play North Carolina in that conference championship game, guys. Thank you so much for uh, listening, watching. Thank you. And uh, subscribing, following everywhere um i really appreciate you guys and um yeah i think we're gonna wrap this thing up make sure you're following on all the social media platforms make sure you are liking subscribing commenting on youtube make sure you're five starring us give us a good old five star right there on that podcast platform that you're listening on right now and make sure you go check out the youtube if you have it this one's going up as video so you're gonna see my pretty face in my room that is painted like the nursery that it used to be with a Dominique Wilkins jersey, a two fitted hats, and a picture from the Braves World Series. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you guys for liking, subscribing, watching, listening, following, everything. Everything that you guys have done, thank you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys this week on Friday. Me and Luke got plenty to talk about because it's going to be the first NFL weekend preview of the year. We'll see you all later. Peace.